recording and start streaming. So let me check and make sure that this is live. Because as those of you who have been following me for some time know, uh, YouTube is fucky with their live bullshit now. And uh, you can't uh, you can't verify that you're that you're live before uh, actually being live. <laughs> you can't uh, you can't test your stream strength anymore uh, in YouTube's backend. You have to you have to like hope hope that you have good connection, um, and then just hit start streaming from OBS because YouTube is a pack of retards run by a a, a gang of monkeys. So. Um, I, I'm joined today by, uh, Stefan Kinsella. Um, I'm going to share this wow. in a, hello. Yeah. Sorry. Wow. Go ahead. I say, wow. I've never met an opinionated libertarian before. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, joined today by Stefan Kinsella, who, uh, is here to discuss how bullshit IP is as a concept. Uh, we got talking on Twitter cause basically uh, I was being accused, as usual, of communism for this, so I figured I'd tag in uh, this guy who's spoken at uh, uh, many a Mises function and uh, has written books on this, uh, the subject from a decidedly capitalist slant. So I figured it'd be an interesting conversation and that maybe we could have some of the questions that people have answered answered. Um, but before any of this, I want to uh, get into uh, our sponsors. It's sponsored by Agoris Nexus, the outlet, the outlet I write for. Uh, so if you want to go see some really good, solid uh, anarchist writing and also a bunch of businesses, we just got a bunch uh, listed. We're basically like a yellow pages for anarchist businesses. Feel free to go check out agorisnexus.com. And also Liberty Professionals, which is a uh, private investigation and consulting firm for security based out of Virginia. Feel free to go check them out as well. If you need like uh, skip tracing, private investigation, process serving, if you just want to know how this stuff works and you want some consulting for that purpose, feel free to hit him up. He has all the tools in his toolbox to serve your needs. So... With all that being said, um, this is uh, a good conversation, I think, because uh, we've uh, we've we've actually spoken on Twitter before. I don't think we've ever spoken in a stream, but um, I've wanted to for a bit now because I've relied pretty heavily on uh, the work of Stefan Kinsella for uh, my anti-intellectual property um, needs before, and I think he. Well, he wrote the book on it. It's in the thumbnail. It'll be uh, a link in the description as well. But uh, basically, he wrote this book from the perspective of his long experience as a uh, as a, an IP lawyer, and uh, it's basically a treatise on how to argue against intellectual property from a libertarian perspective, not from a communist perspective. I mean, let's get that out of the way. You are a filthy commie, right? Well, in the realm of ideas, I guess, because they can't be owned. Uh, but ironically, the people who say that, I mean, China, the communist China, has a patent system very similar to America's. So if you're going to accuse me of being a commie, the communist governments in the world actually have patent systems. So what does that tell you? And copyright, too. Right. 
Yeah, so, okay, let's start with how you got your start in lawyering. And why? Sure, sure. Um, and, yeah, I wrote that little monograph of, about 20 years ago, and in the, in the meantime, I've come up with lots of different or additional arguments and ways of putting it. So I intend to do a brand new book from scratch, probably in about a year, and I'm going to call that one Copy This Book. Um, uh, so I was an engineer and then um, engineering major in, 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 in undergrad and went to law school uh, to make more money and uh, started doing oil and gas law at first in Texas and uh, then switched to patent law soon after because electrical engineers and patent lawyers, that was a hot field in the mid-90s. So had been doing that since about 93, so I don't know how long that is, but um, 27 years? Yeah, so, about 27. Lots of patents. Yeah, I've done lots of patents for companies, like uh, and mostly computer and, and lately laser-related, so high-tech inventions in the computer software, uh, electrical space uh, for companies. I did lots of Intel patents, actually, and Lucent and David Sarnoff Research Labs, GE. I've done some for UPS and other companies. Um so I've done lots of them. Uh, I understand the patent system and trademark and copyright as well, uh, pretty well. And uh, so in law school, I was a libertarian already, and I, I kind of assumed that IP was legitimate because Ayn Rand and the others sort of treat it as a property right. In fact, it's called a property right. Before we started, you and I were talking about propaganda campaigns for alcohol and cigarettes and the state. Um, well, one very successful propaganda campaign was – relabeling patent and copyright, which used to be called monopolies or, or privileges. Um, in fact, the, the patent system originated from um, a statute in England in 1623 called the Statute of Monopolies. I mean, they didn't deny what things were back then. Like, we used to have a Department of War, and now we call it Department of Defense. We're to begin to do that. But when these, when these limited privileges or monopoly grants by the government which were done just for utilitarian reasons, just to stimulate innovation, which they don't, but that was the idea. Um, really, it was to protect innovators from competition and to censor speech. That was the original reasons for these systems. Um, uh, when they came under attack in the 1800s from free market economists saying, this is crazy that the government's granting these monopoly privileges, it's, uh, it's incompatible with the free market, it violates property rights, it violates liberty, uh, it leads to distortions of everything. It reduces innovation, and it muzzles free speech, etc. Um, the defenders of these laws, which had grown up now, these entrenched interests, right? Uh, you know, Thomas Edison and the light bulb, the Wright brothers with their freaking airplane, that kind of crap. Um, they started defending it on natural rights grounds. They said, "Well, it's not a monopoly privilege, or uh, it's not a monopoly privilege. It's a it's a type of property right." And everyone said, "Well." How can it be a property right? Because property rights are rights to control scarce resources like land and cows and you know food and your body and shovels and axes and tools. How can you have a property right in in pattern of information, basically? And the answer was, well, it's a special type of property right. It's uh, it comes from your mind, uh, so it's an intellectual property right. <laughs> so they started calling it a property right because everyone was in favor of property rights. So they successfully got everyone to think that these monopoly privilege grants by the state, which restrict competition and restrict learning, restrict emulation, restrict the free market, uh, and, and limit free speech. Um, in fact, you could argue that the copyright law is a violation of the Constitution 
because it's clearly incompatible with, with the First Amendment, which guarantees free speech and free press, freedom of press rights. Because you know, copyright can be used to prevent you from publishing a book. In fact, it has been. It's been used to cause judges to order some books to be withdrawn or not published, or movies to be destroyed, like the Dracula, at the uh, the Nosferatu movie, which was based upon Dracula. Um, uh, and in fact, so the copyright law in the U.S. is based upon the 1789 Constitution, which has a copyright clause granting Congress the power to do that. But in 1791, as everyone should know, the Bill of Rights was added to the Constitution with the first ten amendments. And the first one is the First Amendment, which prevents, prevents the government from restricting freedom of the press. Um, and since that came two years later, and it's clearly incompatible with the copyright law – which the Supreme Court has recognized. The Supreme Court says that copyright and the First Amendment are, are incompatible. There's a tension between them, so they have to balance it. But usually what you do is when you have a later provision of the Constitution, that one governs. That's why we had prohibition, and then we revealed it with a later statute. Later statutes or later amendments always prevail over earlier ones. That's why you can change the law. Right. It's why the amendment process works. Yeah, that's, that's what it means. So I would argue that because the Constitution added a free speech provision or a free freedom of press provision in 1791, and it's incompatible with the copyright provision based in 1789, that right now the copyright law is completely unconstitutional. Uh, furthermore, aspects of the copyright law as it's now enacted violate the Eighth Amendment of cruel and unusual punishments because the damages are insane. Mm-hmm. They, they bear no relation to any actual so-called damage from copying. <laughs> so there's lots of things you could argue uh, but anyway, so it came into the consciousness because of this rebranding effort, and so now it's called intellectual property. And what's happened is with the U.S. gaining dominance in the world since, since the early part of the 1900s after World War One, and especially after World War II, um, with the rise of the pharmaceutical industry and Hollywood and the music industry in the U.S., which dominate the world culturally and um, and and, uh, and 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 industrially. Um, these players, primarily pharmaceuticals, Hollywood, and the music industry, lobby Congress to not only have stronger and stronger and ever longer copyright terms and patent protections, but to push it onto other countries by means of treaties like uh, patent treaties and trademark treaties and copyright treaties, um, where we twist the arms of other countries – Canada, China, Mexico, you know, Europe, everywhere. Um, to adopt American-style IP law for the benefit of these large American industries. Um, So that's what happened, and it has even affected free market and libertarian advocates like Ayn Rand. She comes over here from Russia. She assumes that the the relatively free market and free system that we have here in our constitutional order is basically almost perfect, such such an improvement over what she had in Russia. And so she took for granted, I believe… Oh, oh well, uh, capitalism includes property rights, and that includes intellectual property rights. And hey, the intellectually important because you know uh, the, the human mind is important. Blah blah blah, which it is, but it doesn't mean that everything the mind creates is ownable. So that's the that's the fundamental landscape of how we got here, and everyone takes it for granted. And it's so arcane; it's like antitrust law or regulatory law or or tax law, which most normal people don't understand because it's a it's hideously arcane and complex, and it's not objective either. It's not like common sense, so you can kind of figure out what the law would be on assault and battery or murder 
or even speeding on the road, most normal people get a sense of what those laws ought to be and probably are. But IT law makes no sense because it's totally made up by legislators, and the boundaries are totally non-objective. It's totally unnatural, and it makes no sense whatsoever. And so no one understands it except a few people like me. And so you have these people defending IP law, like stupid libertarians um, who, who defend it, and they don't even understand what it is. Like, they'll confuse trademark. I mean, I'm sure you would do this. Most people would, which I don't blame you for, but you're not in favor of it. Like, they'll, they'll conflate trademark, trade secret, copyright, patent, and also things like plagiarism and fraud, all of which are completely different and have almost nothing to do with each other. Um, so, and they keep shifting their goals because they're not arguing sincerely. They're arguing tendentiously and from a base of ignorance. So, like, if I say, well, I'm against the patent system, they'll say, oh, so you think it's okay to be a lie to customers? I mean, see, that's got nothing to do with copyright or patent law. Neither one has anything to do with identifying the source. That's plagiarism or fraud. You know, so yeah. shout these stupid slogans, which they want to set, they want to keep their system, you know. So, um, so, I'm being told that your audio is basically inaudible. I'm going to listen to the to the, to the way it sounds right now. Um, I can check it. So, I'm um, your audio is basically let me, let me inaudible. My, uh, well, because I can hear you pretty pretty loudly, and I don't know why I wouldn't be able to hear you um, over the over the live connection. Um, yeah, I'm being told that that people can hear you, but it's very like very very quiet. So I'm going to I'm going to see if I can figure this out uh, real quick. Um but so I just made it a little bit I made the gain a little bit louder. Hold on a second. Yeah, it's it's probably that. I'll just raise it as much as I can. If that's not enough, I will I can just switch to the uh, let, let let me test. Let me test. Test test. test. Uh, I'm going to well, unmute. Let, let me test. test. Let me I got it. I'm max right now. Test test test. Test, test, uh, test. Okay, I think I think it should be fine-ish now. Um, let let me let me know, audience, if it is still bad. Um, the, Hello, can you hear me? Because I've been able to hear you at a reasonable volume this whole time, so I uh, I don't know what that problem would be, and it's and it's still registered in the desktop audio. Uh, like little audio meter. Um, all right, they say it's still the same. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if maybe I can figure something out with the uh, with the filters here. Um, Wait, let me switch my microphone. Real quick. All right, yeah, that might help. Might help. Uh, now I am unable to hear you. I am unable to hear you at all now. Um... All right, hold on. Yeah, bro, I don't know what else to do. Uh, put the mic, like, really close to your mouth. Maybe that'd help. 
Test, test, test. All right. I, I bent it. Maybe that helps. Test, test. Probably. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll wait for the, for the people in chat to tell me whether or not that helped. Um, but so, so, um, on that score then, um, assuming that the audio is like reasonably okay now, uh, they, they say it's slightly better. So maybe, maybe okay. proximity I'll to mouth I'll helps. Talk louder too. I'll talk louder too. Okay. All right. Um, what was I going to say? Okay, pretty much everybody is saying it's better at this point. Um, okay. and, I, and I haven't yet given the, the kind of argument against it. I'm just trying to set the ground. Right. Uh, let me just say, um, uh, I believe that, that I, I take a broad view of socialism, Hans Hermann Hoppe's view, which is, um, I mean, the classical definition of socialism is the institutionalized or collective ownership and control of the means of production. Right. But if you generalize that and extend it, get to the essence of it, it's basically um, institutionalized invasion of property rights, right? That's the essence of what's wrong with socialism. Um, and so any legal, any, any institutionalized action that undercuts or invades private property rights, which are, in, uh, which are uh, determined and respected according to the kind of Lockean natural property rights ideas of original appropriation or homesteading, and contract, basically, uh, anything that undercuts that is itself socialistic and violates property rights. And intellectual property law clearly does that because what it does is it, it doesn't grant ownership an idea because that's literally impossible because all rights are enforceable by physical force. That's what laws do. They, they back up these rules, these property rules, which are the right the ability of some human actor to control and use a resource, they they back it up with force. Uh, and the force can only be applied to physical things, right? Because we live in a material world. The force is applied to people's bodies or to the things that they control and use, like their money or their land or their or, or their or their objects that they own. Um, so all rights are property rights and you simply cannot have a property right in an abstract pattern of information. Right? When we act as human beings, what we do is we see the world and we understand some things about it, and we use our knowledge of the world to decide what to do. That is, what ends to pursue and what means to use to achieve that. Right? So knowledge of the way the world is, knowledge of facts about the world, and some idea about what's coming, knowledge of the future, makes us uneasy about what's coming, and we want to change that. So we have some knowledge also about cause and effect like which things are causally efficacious that we can employ as scarce means of action to help us achieve our goals, right? So all human action is guided by knowledge or information, but it employs and uses physical scarce resources in the world to achieve our ends. Right. Um, so the property rights apply only to the second thing, to the scarce resources, because they can only be used by one actor at a time, so there's a possibility of conflict. That's why we have property rules to decide who gets to use the resource, and the libertarian answer is whoever had it first or whoever got it from a previous owner by contract. That's, that's the answer. It's really simple. Um, but the knowledge that guides action could be shared by millions of people at once. So you can't have ownership of a recipe, right? which is what basically guides all action is recipes. Um, so when you try to protect a recipe by law, what you really end up doing is just reassigning property rights in scarce resources. So, for example, the patent law doesn't give you ownership of an invention in terms of a scarce abstract idea. 
what it does is it gives you the right to stop other people from using their scarce resources in a way that you don't like. Mm-hmm. So in the law, that's called and copyright does the same thing. I can stop someone from printing a book if it if it has a pattern of information on it that resembles too closely the one that I wrote first. Okay, so copyright and patent law grant what in the law is called a negative servitude or a negative easement, which is a type of property right. Right, you'll see these all the time in in, in neighborhoods where there's restrictive covenants. Right, um, um, where everyone agrees that they can't use their house for a pig farm or to paint it orange or something like that. So everyone in the neighborhood basically gives a tiny piece of co-ownership of their property of their house to their neighbors, not to use their house, but to but to, to have a veto on how you can use your house. Mm-hmm. So that's perfectly fine if it's consensually agreed to. Just like it's okay to have sex with a girl if she agrees to it. But it's not okay to have sex with her if she doesn't agree. That's called rape. So the whole issue is consent. So a negative servitude is perfectly permissible and useful contractually if it's consented to by the burden to state owner. If I have a factory that makes widgets and I agree with someone else not to use it to make a certain type of widget, okay, they have a property right in my factory. They can stop me from using it that way because I gave them that property right. Right. If I agree not to publish a book, contractually, same thing. But if the state just arbitrarily gives someone that negative servitude, it's like a taking of my property. It's taking part of the bundle of my property rights, giving it to someone else. So that right. copyright is really institutionalized theft or redistribution of wealth, and it, it undermines wealth and wealth creation. It undermines innovation, and it, it reduces competition. And it infringes on the free market and productivity and human life. Uh, actually, co- copyright and patent, especially patent, literally causes the deaths of lots of people every year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because we could go into the medical bullshit with COVID right now. Yep, COVID and also lots of drugs. Like uh, I've got stories on my on my on my website uh, about this. Uh, you know, sometimes there's only one supplier of a drug, and there's not enough supply, and uh, no one else can make it because of the patent, and people die, like literally. So, it's a horrible thing. Yeah. Well, not so. Not only that, but like, let's say nobody died specifically because of access to the drug, but people died because they couldn't like they couldn't treat something early enough, like they didn't have the thing and then they couldn't get like get a baseline level of health because they couldn't get access to some generic form of it because of patent or whatever um or there's two other ways there's two other ways that it causes causes death um number one it reduces innovation right and if you reduce innovation that reduces the amount of technology we have to save lives and it reduces the wealth that we have and wealth you know, the poorer we are, the more people die sometimes because you can't afford certain things. Um, I mean, who knows? If we hadn't had the patent system roaring along for the last 80 years like it has been, we might have flying cars by now and we might be living to the age 300, right? Um, and the copyright system censors speech and is threatening internet freedom, right? Because it's used are all these takedowns and mm-hmm. things like that. So. Um, so it basically supports state power, and of course the state is the greatest enemy to freedom and to life on the planet. So all these libertarians who support copyright are freaking insane because it it's 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 used by the state to 
restrict freedom on the internet, which is the greatest tool we have to fight the state. Well, it also wouldn't exist without the state. It's like corporations, you know? You fill out the right paperwork, you beseech the right government institutions, and then suddenly your group of people is different than us mere mortal groups of people. Um, And suddenly you can behave in a way and, like, prosper in a way that, uh, that other groups of mere mortals cannot. Um, because you've transcended the mortal realm and are now a corporation, which is a special type of person. Um, it's it's like that, only it's with ideas. And so... Well, well let, me, let me say something about that. I would disagree a little bit with that analogy. Um, uh, I do agree that that's another argument against IP, is uh, patent and copyright, because they are purely creatures of statute. Uh, in American law and in Western law, they, they never arose on the free, on the common law like trademark did and defamation law did, but copyright and patent did not, and they could not. As I said, patents arose from the statute of monopolies in England, and copyright arose from the statute of Anne in England in 1710, and then they arose from the patent and copyright statutes in America in about 1790, right after the uh, – 1791, 1790-91, right after the Constitution um, – and if you believe that decentralized and common law systems is the best way to develop law, then you're totally opposed to legislation completely as a means of making law. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't have – if you had no legislation, you couldn't have patent and copyright at all. And you can only have legislation with the legislature, which you can only have with the state, which is illegitimate. Right. It's all fiat all the way down. Yeah. Now, corporations uh, – I, I think there's a, a confusion about – most people think that corporations get this artificial privilege from the state, and therefore it's a, it's a, it's a thing that couldn't exist on the free market. Uh, I think that's wrong. I think that um, Robert Hessen has explained why in his set night book in the 1970s called In Defense of the Corporation. Um, limited liability is not a special privilege because it's the natural default thing that would, would exist. Um, all, all, all limited liability means is that the shareholders um, – to, uh, that gave money, invested money in a corporation, are not personally liable for torts committed by employees of the corporation. Um, and that would be the case anyway because they didn't commit the tort, so why would they be liable? Um, so they don't need the state to give them any privilege, um, and, but the state pretends like they're giving them a privilege and uses that as an excuse to regulate corporations. Right? So they say, we're giving you a privilege, so we get to regulate you. And in fact, we have, that's why you have corporate income tax, because they're called a person, and therefore they, they're subject to income tax, which amounts to double taxation of the shareholders, um, which is doubly unjust, right? So uh, I would be happy to get rid of incorporations that, as you said, have the common law just let people have contracts that formed business enterprises that they could call whatever they want, but would have similar features to modern corporations, I believe. But that's... Well, well, right, but like what I'm talking about is corporations in general. And, you know, you and I both know that LLCs are not the only kind of corporation. I know many people with LLCs and they don't operate like entirely this, the same as like a C corporation or any of these sorts of like basically tax dodging mechanisms or um, regulatory uh, evasion mechanisms that basically they get away with certain things that other businesses don't because they agreed to certain things for in exchange for that sort of privilege. That's why uh, Samuel Edward Conkin III, the, uh, the, the founder of agorism, as I'm sure you know, 
uh, called corporations an imitation of the state and not the market because they're an organization of people asking for separate class over others. Um, not, not all the time, obviously, but the vast majority of cases. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite as lefty as these guys. I'm not against capitalism. or um, I do think that – I think that often people use the word corporation as a synonym for big business, which it's not because some corporations are very small. And there are other right. that are not organized in the corporate form. They're like limited liability partnerships or other things. So really people just have this idea of – I think the word corporation is used as a stand-in for big business, which of course quite often is in bed with the government. Um but uh, anyway, that's well. For for instance, the uh, one of the sponsors for this show, uh, Liberty Professionals, is uh, is an LLC, as as far as I know, um, and he's like uh, one person with a couple of employees in Virginia. So, like, I know that not all corporations are mega corporations, but um, most people when they start one have aspirations for large things. I, I think I think we can both agree to that. But like I, the. Lots. There's okay. Maybe more small ones. I mean, I, I was a corporation by myself at one point, and I never aspired to anything bigger. Uh, lots of people do it for. Uh, um, look, the state imposed. Look, I don't begrudge any company, any business enterprise from finding a creative way to limit or lower taxes or right. Regulations. I mean, we're we're anarchists, libertarians. We don't think those are just in the first place. So um, it depends. Regulations on them. I want everyone else to benefit from that. From right. Regulation. So, like, to me, it, I think it depends on whether or not they also seek to impose those things, whether or not they're also statists. Like, if, if, if they want to avoid it because they believe they're unethical, like these regulations and taxes, and they want to avoid them because they don't personally want to incur them, that's one thing. And, like, you know, if, if they think that there's some sort of, like, like, philosophical argument to be made in that regard that's a much more interesting case to be made than uh than somebody saying i don't want it but if it if it's ever handy to me i'm going to bring down the gavel of the state on you um and and i know a lot of corporations have done that before they like they avoid the the government where they can and then they use it to get ahead in terms of competition i mean that's one of the ways ip is used as sort of a cudgel I'm 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 sure that you agree with that. Yeah, and it, the, the the problem is that corporations, okay, so they're technically owned by shareholders. So that's what the mm-hmm. law says. I actually think that's actually slightly incorrect. Shareholders don't actually own the corporation in the traditional sense. Ownership is distributed. Um, I mean, if you have a Google share, you can't go use the Google headquarters for your <laughs> right. You can't use the Google jet. So you don't really have some claim on their assets mm-hmm. and on dividends. That's about, and you have the right to vote first for for directors. That's about all, and to get some reports, some information. That's all shareholder do. Uh, and not every shareholder ever gave money to the company because some of them bought the share from a previous owner. So, yeah, you know, the managers are in the libertarian sense. The managers are somewhat owners because they have the, the legal right to be using the assets so long as they're employed there. Um, the directors control the ship in a sense, so it's distributed. Um, and uh, you know, I think it's a slippery slope to start. Oh, and so what I was going to say is, so the employees and the man- the directors and the managers of the corporation, 
they don't really have like even if they're libertarians, they don't have a right to they don't have a right to steer the corporation in a way to comply with their personal ethical views. They have a they have a fiduciary obligation to maximize profits. And if you right. live in a system, a mixed economy like ours, where you could sue someone for patent infringement and make a billion dollars, uh, you have to do that because otherwise you could be sued, right? Or you could be fired. So it's 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 a vicious. It's it's like we have a welfare system. You don't blame the people getting welfare. I mean, the reason we oppose welfare is that if you have a welfare trough out there, the pigs are going to come eat at it. If no one would eat at the trough, we wouldn't oppose these laws. You know, if we had a drug war and and they didn't enforce it, I wouldn't care. I don't care what they say. You know, the reason we laws are just scribbles on paper. What's that? Without enforcers, laws are just yeah. Right. So the reason we oppose laws is because they have an effect. So if you have a welfare system, the reason we oppose it is people will take advantage of it. So that's a natural thing. You can't expect to put out free food and ex- expect the pigs not come eat it. They're going to do it, and they're not the problem. The pigs aren't the problem, right? Right. The problem is setting up the free food. So if you have a patent system, then corporations and businesses are going to have to use it. I mean you might have an occasional principal holdout who hurts his, hurts his family profit for some – principle but those people are going to be weeded out eventually by competition so you know the problem is not how people respond to the patent system or the copyright system is having it in the first place because people will respond to it and they will use it so it's like antitrust law, it's like antitrust law. The, the problem with antitrust law is that some people will use that to sue their competitors or to, to get the justice department to bring a suit against their competitors that's going to happen if you have antitrust law we need to get rid of antitrust law. We need to get rid of the tax system. We need to get rid of you know, government education, the welfare system, and intellectual property law because they lead to bad results. Yeah. Well, so on that score then, um, because you, you've been in this for a while now, um, and there, there are going to be some naysayers who say that because you're an IP lawyer, you benefit from a system that you allegedly oppose. So... Would you say that your role as an IP lawyer is to try and benefit the small person as much as possible, the small business, increase competition? Well, there's a few ways to respond to that. Um, First of all, maybe I'm a hypocrite. So what? How does the fact that there's a lawyer named Kinsella in Houston who's a hypocrite mean that patent laws are justified? Number one. Good. let's, Let's suppose the patent laws are unjust. Who do you who do you expect to figure that out other than someone who understands a goddamn law? Right. That's basically got to be a patent lawyer. Um, so basically, they're setting up a thing where no one can criticize it because the only people that could criticize it are patent lawyers, but they can't because they're hypocrites, and everyone else doesn't understand it. So basically, the system is perpetuated. So it's all bullshit. Um, second of all, there are uh, fourth of all, there are many types of IP law. And I happen to specialize in procuring patents and helping companies defensively. Um, so my, my job is more like making bullets and selling the bullets to people that have guns. Okay, Some people can use those bullets for good, and some people can use them for evil. Right? Uh, I would never go help someone point their gun at an innocent victim, which would be analogous to me helping someone sue someone in litigation to enforce the patent against an innocent competitor. However, if my client gets sued by someone for patent infringement, 
I would be happy to have, number one, help provide him with a, a war chest of patents that he can use defensively and then to help him assert his patents defensively in a countersuit or a counterclaim against the person aggressing against him. Absolutely. But in fifth of all, uh, I would prefer a system where my job didn't exist. I think I'm a waste on the, a drain on the economy, but given that this system exists, people need help navigating it. Um, I view my personal role is analogous to an oncologist who is helping to fight and maybe cure cancer, but he gets paid a big salary while he's a, a cancer doctor because cancer still exists. He's not a hypocrite for getting paid to fight a disease that he wants to see abolished. Any more than a defense attorney who represents criminal uh, represents people, innocent people who are accused of violating the drug laws, help them avoid jail. He has to get paid to do what his job is, and if he was successful in getting the drug war abolished, his job would disappear. Same thing with tax attorneys. So given that these laws exist, you need tax attorneys, and you need defense attorneys that represent people attacked by the state, and you need patent lawyers to help people get patents to arm themselves from other people that have patents. It's all a big waste, but, you know, what are you going to do? I had a talk with a libertarian today who needs to get a patent for this purpose, and I'm probably going to help him do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would love a world where my job was, was, was abolished. Well, and it's sort of like this. Like, the, the way I explain this sort of thing to people is... Um, I would rather talk to a former Leo about police corruption than a hippie, you know, who who lives with his parents. I would rather talk to a veteran about the horrors of war than a file clerk who also moonlights as a as a grocery clerk at Safeway. Right. I I would uh, like you go where the expertise is in order to figure out how to solve problems. Or you're not actually gonna solve the problems, and people can. F- Go ahead. Well, I was, I was say early in my career, I toyed with the idea of specializing in tax law because I think that's a fun field, especially, and you can make a lot of money at it if you become very sophisticated and high level, and you help these these rich people or businesses structure their dealings so that they reduce the tax burden they have to pay. Um, and it's always a cat and mouse game. You come up with a thing, then the IRS changes regulations to, to catch that thing, and you're always creatively trying to do this. And the best way to do that, honestly, would be to go work for the IRS for a few years and see the system from the inside. And then you quit, and then you join the, the good side. But I don't think I could stomach working for the IRS because I would be doing such evil while I was there, even if I did a bad job for three years. But but patent, by contrast – you can keep your hands pretty clean and just do it defensively and learn a lot, like I did. Um, so, or you can even work for the patent office as a as a as a patent examiner for a few years, and all you're doing is approving or rejecting patents that are filed, and you could just reject a lot of them and do a good thing and learn the system. So, but I couldn't quite bring myself to being a, a tax lawyer for the IRS. However, if I had a problem with the IRS right now and I was hiring a lawyer, I might want to hire a lawyer who used to work for the IRS. You know, just like you said. Yeah. Well, because, you know, I'm I'm sort of like a, a little bit arrogant and insane. And um, like, you know, I've helped many people I know out of tax issues and even a couple like patent issues. But I also have never gone to school for those things. I've, you know, I've, I've never like taken any certifications for those sorts of things. 
I did it like because I thought I could and I thought it'd be interesting. But um, like I couldn't see myself going to like uh, any sort of formal education for that sort of thing in order to get hired into a good enough paying position that it would even be worth it to work in some place like the IRS. Um, so, you know, I can definitely see like, and then beyond that, knowing that I was responsible for raids and audits and shit like that, like I'm fucking good. Thank you. Um, so, um, on that score then, uh, when it comes to this sort of thing, uh, what what are a few things you can you, you can sort of talk about where you've seen uh, IPs directly hurt people? Huh. Well, first of all, small startup companies live in fear of being sued by a patent troll or by even worse by a big competitor. Um, most people seem to grudgingly admit that the patent system is what they say. And the copyright system is totally out of control because um, um, it used to be 14 years in the beginning. Um, extendable with a request to 28 years, but that was it. Now the term of patents is life of the author plus 70 years, so it could be 150 years. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. Um, 20 years keeps getting tacked on it every 10, 15 years when Mickey Mouse's copyright's about to expire. Right. Sonny Bono, the, the, the stupid, ditzy Republican congressman who ran into a tree while snow skiing, but not wearing a helmet, died. Um, you know, he got that he was getting this uh, copyright extension law passed right before he died. They named it the Sonny Bono Copyright Extension Act. That was the last time it was extended from, seven, from 50 to 70 years after death of the author. And uh, I doubt it's going to go anymore because the appetite, everyone sees how ridiculous it is. Um, the patent system. Um, um, you know, if you're a, a small company, you have no chance standing up to the big companies because they have millions of dollars, which they've gotten partly because of the monopoly privilege given to them by patents, which helps them keep competition at bay. Um, so like in the smartphone industry, for example, um, you know, who are the big players in smartphones like Apple, Motorola, uh, Samsung? And that's about it because they all have tons of patents. They sue each other from time to time, but they all have so many patents that they usually have something they could say the other guy's infringing. So one guy sues the other, then they counter sue each other. The lawyers make tens of millions of dollars on these expensive lawsuits, clogging up the courts for five years. And then they just have a settlement agreement. One pays the other something, and all they do is pass the costs on to the consumer by raised prices. They don't care. But in the meantime, they keep out competition from little guys because the little guys can't engage in these battles. They can't afford the lawyers' fees, and they don't have a b bunch of patents to countersue these guys with. So it, it forms effectively cartels or oligopolies, right? So you have, and um, and not only that, a, a small a startup company um, is subject to threats from patent trolls. That is just someone, some some like the ambulance chaser version of. Of patent law, someone just buys up patents from some dead company, and they they just look for victims and they go sue them for five, ten, twenty thousand bucks nuisance crap, and, and uh, people just pay it because they don't have it would take way more than that to defend it. 
Uh, and if it's for more than that, they have they can't even you know startup companies are struggling for cash all the time. They can't afford this, so it really is a huge burden. It's it's a big it's a big uh, cloud of uncertainty over startup companies, and it's it's got to have uh, the effect of causing tons of businesses not to arise in the first place. Now we don't see them because they don't exist. They're stillborn. You know, this is the the seen and the unseen is Henry Hazlitt, and I think the invisible know, hand. Well, the invisible, the invisible deaths, you know, the right? Invisible, invisible, the invisible harm. Um, it's sort of like the FDA. You know, the FDA prohibits people from releasing certain drugs, and that causes deaths of people that could have been saved by those drugs. But you don't see those, you don't see the the, the benefits that would have accrued. But if the FDA releases a drug too early and it causes a few deaths, then they get blamed for it. So it makes them overcautious, and on net, it causes deaths. You know, that's why we call it. The Federal Death Administration. Uh, it's the same effect with, with the patent system. Um, there's just I have a, a, a blog post I used to update. It's called the Patent Copyright Trademark Horror Files. It's on my c4sif.org uh, uh, blog, um, where I just collected all these horror stories about people dying or people uh, being censored. Uh, in fact, you see a version of that now. With, it's not exactly IP related, but IP is insidious and has an effect on a lot of these things, which are not. It's not easy to see at first, but um, uh, with, when, with Facebook and, and, and Twitter um, and, and YouTube just shutting down people's channels, demonetizing them, censoring them, blocking them, uh, and ruining their business models, right? Like Stephen Molyneux and, and the, 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 the people with the wrong opinions, you know. Um, there is an IP aspect to that too. It's tenuous, but it's at least analogous to what happens with IP. Um, you know, the whole field of music and doc, doc, a lot of documentaries don't get don't get make it to screen because they're sued by passersby whose faces are there because of some kind of publicity right, which is a type of IP right. Uh, or they have a picture of they have a, a scene with a with a with a sculpture of a built in front of a building in a city and the. the the artist claims a copyright in the sculpture, and you can't have that in your documentary <laughs> without my permission. It just bogs down everything. It distorts culture. It makes movies more insipid because they do safe sequels, and uh, you know, and, and everything's the same, and they're sameness, right? And everything is safe, um, uh, and, and and controlled by the big corporations, really. Right. It even tamps down dissent because you you, you can barely do parody anymore. Like you can you you can barely do criticism, parody, any sort of thing like that, for fear that they're going to sue you for having their IP in the movie without their permission, saying things they don't like. Like it really allows for that monopoly, monopoly on ideas. Well, that's that's why I said that copyright law is, I think, clearly unconstitutional because it violates free speech rights. It literally does. I mean, um, uh, and trademark also, trademark actually is used for that purpose too. Uh, now, I haven't actually gone into the positive, the, the clear – I just gave the negative servitude analogy, but if you want, I don't know if we need to. I can I can lay out quickly the exact argument for why IP law is unjust. Anything you want to do. Uh, okay, so the basic case is – the basic – the way to understand why copyright and patent law are totally evil and destructive uh, – in fact, I think it may be the most – the worst law that we have. Um, you could say the Federal Reserve and, and, and central banking is the most harmful because it allows the state to finance what it's doing and the tax system for the same reason. Um, and public education because it brainwashes everyone and makes them good subservient drones of the state. Um, 
you could say that um, you know eminent domain law is bad. You could say that war is bad because it is the it's the health of the state and it kills millions of people. Um, but uh, all and the drug war, of course, is clearly evil, and there's no good argument for that whatsoever. But the thing with all those laws is at least a reasonably common sense, sincere, decent person, especially a libertarian, you can see why those things are bad. Even if you're a minarchist and you believe in the state, you see why war is almost always bad and to be avoided, right? You see why the tax system, even if we need it, it should be minimized and it's bad. You see why all these things are bad. But unlike all those things, IP law is called property right. So it's why <laughs> property rights. So it's more insidious and it's going to be the hardest to root out and it I really believe that the, hum- the, the future of the human race, the only way we can really be liberated is to grow in wealth and technology uh-huh. because uh, there's only so many resources in the world. So our wealth grows over time because we gain more knowledge every generation, and that knowledge lets us use the, the scarce resources in the world more and more efficiently, right? Uh-huh. Which is why I said earlier, if you look at Mises' human action or praxeological framework of human action, where humans employ means guided by knowledge to achieve their ends, the means are the scarce things in the world, and that's not really going to increase a lot. But knowledge increases every generation. That's why we're way richer than people were 200 years ago. You know, We're still the same kind of people. We still live on the same planet, but we have more knowledge now. So anything that impedes the spread of knowledge and the learning of knowledge, which is what patent and copyright do… Uh, diminishes the rate of acquisition of these technological this knowledge, you know, and makes us poor, right? And and, and, and slows down the, the the progress of the human race, um, which I think we need to do to escape to reach escape velocity, so that human beings, individual human beings, gradually become so powerful with their robots and their machines and their wealth that the state fades into irrelevance or impotence, right? Like. When we all have robot servants and little nuclear-powered farms in our backyards, we won't need the state for protection or defense or for doctors or for food or anything. And so the state will just atrophy into some kind of zoo-type thing, I believe, but only if we don't stuff ourselves out first with the gray goo thing, right? With nuclear war, mm-hmm. with, uh, with a world, one-world state, totalitarian thing. Technocracy in this case. Like some coronavirus lockdown, um, so we have to reach escape velocity as soon as possible to get there before the state wakes up and sees it. You know that's why Bitcoin is in a tenuous state right now because I still think the biggest danger to Bitcoin is the state might shut it down. They're still- right. The, the faster Bitcoin can reach escape velocity, it's going to be too late. Sort of like Uber. You know, Uber would have been shut down if they would have asked permission, but they didn't. They just did it. And by the time the, the taxicab unions and the Stupid Democrat state politicians in the cities and the states wake, woke up to it. All their constituents liked it. It was too late for them to, to abolish it. So I'm hoping something like that happens with Bitcoin, and also hoping something like that happens in a more gradual form with human, just human individual empowerment by wealth and technology. You know, we get wealthier and wealthier. Everyone's basically a millionaire or a billionaire, and you have an army of self-sufficient, defensive. And offensive tools, and you know, food and energy, and all this kind of stuff. You know, the state's going to have a harder and harder time of controlling us if they don't obliterate all life on Earth first. So, I think it's like abolishing IP is like essential to the survival of the human race in a sense. It's really critical. Um, so, 
the case against it is that we live in this world and we need to have security in property because there's a possibility of conflict over it. That's why we have property rights. And again, the libertarian view – in fact, everyone's view is that these rights should be granted in accordance with whoever uses it first and whoever got it by contract. It's just that the libertarians are consistent about it. Everyone else makes exceptions. They'll say, well, you own this resource if you got it from the state of nature or if you got it by contract or if the state took it from someone by a law and gave it to you. Right. So they make a big exception. Now, we libertarians don't make that exception, so we're just more consistent. Yeah, we don't have fences. So basically you can't have property rights in the knowledge because that ends up giving property rights in scarce resources. You know, I own my computer. You don't own my computer. Right? So I can use my computer to type whatever the hell I want, to print on a piece of paper whatever the hell I want in the, in the, in the safety of my own home. Right? But IP law would let someone else stop me from doing that. Well, also, like, also, like, it's it's rooted, it, IP law seems to me to be rooted in a massively uh, obvious logical flaw. That is that copying is not theft. Um, and, and for IP to assert that copying somehow violates somebody's property rights, that yeah. using your own property that you've procured and arranging it in a certain way as to be the same as somebody else's, is somehow stealing that from somebody else, even though they retain their property. Um, to me, that that flies in the fucking face of everything that property is supposed to be about, which is scarcity. It's supposed to be about, like, you know, my effort went into procuring my scarce resources, and because of that, because I did that and I own myself a 100% scarce resource... Um, like, all of those rights flow from that, and you can't have my thing. But IP asserts that everybody basically owns everything, because it's saying that as soon as I arrange my, my atoms in a way, you're not allowed to arrange your atoms in the same way. And to me, that's, like, not only absurd, but it's antithetical to the nature of property rights as an assertion. Um, so, to me, it's... it's, it's Go ahead. Also, you've become invisible. We can only see Russia now. Yeah, I'm coming. I'm just turning the lights on. But I'm uh, that's fine. Turn the lights up. Um, it's it's clearly absurd. In that, it it it, it it's similar to. Uh, I can turn the lights on. It's okay. Um, it's similar to minimum wage law. Like, so we all know that minimum wage law is absurd because if you made it a thousand bucks an hour, I mean, if if fifteen bucks an hour is good, let's make it a hundred bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. But the people that are in favor of raising the minimum wage, they, they, they sort of sense that it causes damage, right? It causes unemployment. But So they don't want to raise it too much. Mm-hmm. But it makes no sense. Same thing with copyright and patent, and this is another reason that it's absurd to call it a, a, a property right, much less a natural property right with some stupid – Or a libertarian property right. Yeah, like 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 like, Adam, like, like the Randians, the objectivists. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, they say things like, "Well, under the law, it's very it's it's treated like a property right. Uh, like you could buy it and sell it and have contracts about it." And and I'm saying, "Yeah, well, under slavery, you could buy and sell human beings too. It, it, so what? So what that the law can be distorted to cover things it shouldn't cover? You know, <laughs> the fact that it can do it doesn't mean that it ought to do it or that it's just. Um, but the the point is, 
all patent and copyright are finite, like they have finite terms, even though they're way too long for copyright. They're about 17 years for patents and about 130 years roughly on average for copyright, but they, they expire after a certain time. But no other property rights do that. You know, If you own a watch or your home, you could theoretically own it forever, pass it on to your grandkids, mm-hmm. and they could own it. For just- it's heritable. Property rights last forever, but they don't in the case of IP. Now, why don't they? They don't because the people that are in favor of IP law, they sense that if they made them last perpetually like real property rights do, that we would die because we couldn't do anything. You could do, couldn't perform any actions in the world because everything you do is based on something you learned, and you learned it from someone else in the past, and, and their ancestors – I mean, so their descendants would own – some IP right inherited from them. Like you couldn't, you couldn't turn on your light switch. You couldn't use fire to cook food because someone else came up with that. So it would just entangle us so much uh, that we would not be able to do anything, and we would just die out as race. So they, they. Hold on a second. Turn my phone. And, and imagine if that was the case with like recipes and shit. Like, oh shit, yeah, somebody made a hamburger a while back. You want you you don't want to pay him royalties. You better not fry your beef that way in the kitchen. I know. And so, so actually, one of the earliest uh, proto-IP systems was in the, the Greek city-state of Sybaris, S-Y-B, about, about around 500 BC. So they would have an annual a culinary cooking competition, and whoever made the best dish, according to the judges, they would be awarded um, a monopoly on making that dish for a year. <laughs> so you know, it's crazy. And uh, some people do apply for patents on some types of food preparation. Um, I think there was Domino's or someone had a pizza with like there was a roll at the end of the crust and they put some filling in the roll. I'm, it's crazy. Um, it's crazy. It's it's uh, by the way it's similar to this cultural appropriation idea, right? Mm-hmm. So, like where you can't if you're not Mexican you can't make a goddamn taco or something. Um, it's fucking stupid. So <laughs> you see how this IP idea. So I'll tell you. I think there's two main confusions or errors in society and even among libertarians which leads them to favor um, IP. And if you want to talk about those I can lay those out to explain where the error comes from. Yeah, sure. Okay, so one well, one, one preliminary error is people confuse questions with arguments. So I'll say, okay, patent and copyright are invalid and illegitimate unjust for the following reasons. Therefore, they're criminal and trespass and violate rights, and they should be abolished. And their argument is not – or their response is not, well, your argument is flawed for this reason. And their, and their response is not a genuine question like, like, well, how would this work? Mm-hmm. Their response is usually, well, how am I supposed to make money as an author? Mm-hmm. Without, in other words, which is a dishonest and tendentious and loaded question because they're not really asking a sincere question. They're – they're, they're presupposing that that they have to have a system that lets an author make money from selling novels. And if my system doesn't do that, then they're just going to reject it. It's very similar to the welfare status. When we say welfare is theft, then they'll say, well, how are poor people supposed to eat? So they ask that. They bark it out like it's a challenge. Like if I don't answer their question and give them a goddamn mm-hmm. key, that in my – so I'll say, well, maybe there's charity. They'll say, well, does that guarantee people are going to get food? No, well then, then that doesn't guarantee it. So I'm going to reject your system. So of course the state doesn't guarantee it either. I was about to say that their, their system is 
bankrupt anyway. Social Security <laughs> fucking go bankrupt and all that anyway. So it doesn't. <laughs> Insolvent, broke, in debt. They're fucking. They're they're begging in front of a store and they're at. They're, they're demanding that you find perfect solutions. So, so they'll say something like, "Well, how are authors supposed to make money selling novels if, if anyone could just copy it?" So I'll, 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 I can answer that question. I say, "Well, you know, I'm not obligated to answer that question because I don't think there's a natural right to make a profit doing anything." You ever heard of the free market? You know, you ever heard of entrepreneurship? You figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I have a post where like J.K. Rowling could have sold Harry Potter, got a bunch of fans. She would have had knockoffs. She would have made a little money. But got a fan base, and then she could have said something like, uh, "Oh, there's three movies being made because they don't need my permission to make a movie," and one of them might come to her and say, "Hey, would you endorse this movie and be a consultant?" And we can say that in our advertisement, say we'll get more, we'll have more ticket sales from your fans because they'll want to see the Harry Potter movie that was officially approved by the author. We'll give you a cut of the profits of the film. Okay, so that's one way she could make a lot of money, and then she could write the sequel and say, "Hey, to all my millions of fans, I've got a sequel ready to go. When I get..." When I get a hundred thousand or a million pre-orders at five bucks a book, I'm going to release it. So that's five million bucks right there. You know, and over time she would have made, you know, maybe a quarter billion dollars anyway. Um, but the problem with answering those questions is they're never ending. So as soon as I say that, they'll move on to the next question, and they're all ad hoc. They'll say, "Okay, well, what about a poet?" And of course, my response is, "Well, poets don't make money now." So <laughs> right. I mean, they don't have a principled approach to the world. They just want to ask one question after the other. They want a bunch of guarantees. Okay, but the two fundamental errors, I think, the more theoretical fundamental error is people are used to the idea of a, phys- a more physical world. Well, we live in an information and a digital age now, but that's only relatively recent, right? Um, previously, almost everything was physical, commodities that are physical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same reason that, that even some Austrians had trouble accepting Bitcoin because they're used to gold, money arising as a physical commodity. <coughs> Peter Schiff. So, um, uh, uh, I've talked to him and his son, by the way. It's so funny how he debates his 17, his 18 year old son who's, who's into Bitcoin mm. <laughs> and against IP, um, Spencer. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, so what people, the fundamental mistake people make is that they basically think that creation is a source of property rights, but it's not. Right. Well, there's three, but that's – so there's three sources of property rights. Number one is if you find something that's unowned in the wilderness and you you appropriate it, you homestead it. Yeah. That's one. Number two, if you acquire it by contract from a previous owner. Okay, so that's contract. And then a third would be restitution, like if you commit a harm against someone and and, and then – so you owe them you owe them some compensation. Make them whole. So they, they, they deserve they have a pro- they gain some of the pro- some of your property rights transfer to them because you harm them. Okay, so that's you could think of that as a, like a type of contractual transfer, uh, but because they're all the result of voluntary behavior. Contract is a voluntary giving of something to someone, and uh, if but if you voluntarily you know intentionally harm someone, you basically agreed to compensate them for the damage you do to them. So basically, there's only three two or three ways. Everyone thinks creation is a source of property, but it's not. Creation is a source of wealth. That is true. So, for example, if I take some raw materials and I turn it into a spear, then 
I have more wealth because the spear is more useful to me than the raw wood and the raw iron. Mm-hmm. Okay? But I only own the spear if I own the raw materials that went into it. So I own the spear that results because I own the raw materials. So I already own it. I don't own it because of creation. I have more wealth because of creation, but I don't own anything extra because of creation. And you can see this clearly in the case of like an employee on a factory line, like a worker at Ford's factory who is making cars using raw material that Henry Ford owns or the Ford Corporation owns, right? And this is why basically IP is a Marxist type of idea because it is rooted in the labor theory of value, right? They think that creation is a source of property or labor, you might say, just like the Marxists believe that labor is a source of value and if it's an makes a profit of it, that means they're taking some of the surplus labor value of the employees and exploiting them, right? But from a libertarian point of view, it's a, it's a contractual situation. An employee uses raw materials owned by someone else, shapes them to – rearranges them into another shape. That's called production or transformation or creation, and a car comes out. They don't own the car because they didn't own the raw materials that went into it. They're entitled to a payment, a salary, because that was the contractual deal. So if you manipulate raw materials into a different shape, you don't own the outcome if you didn't own the raw materials. Right. Conversely, if you own the raw materials, then you own it not because of creation, but because you own them already. So creation is not a source of rights, but if you think of it as a source of rights, because it, it is a source of wealth, that's how we get richer, by using our minds and our intellect and our labor to do things with raw materials to make them more useful to us, right? Um then you start conflating the source of wealth with a source of ownership. But once you start thinking of ownership as coming from creation, which it doesn't, then you think, well, we can create not only new machines, but we can come up with ideas that are useful. And who's the creator of the idea? The inventor or the novelist. So they own what they created too, even though it's an abstract thing like a poem or a novel or a painting or a movie or a piece of music. Or, or the design for a new machine, or an airplane, or an electric light bulb, or something like that. That's the fundamental mistake, um, a theoretical mistake, and everyone is stuck in that. You'll hear that all the time, like, you stole my thing. Um, the second error is the more common one, because we live in a pragmatic and a utilitarian age where everything the government does is based upon cost and benefit analysis, Chicago crap, Kosian crap, all this stuff. So the common thing you'll hear is, well, without a patent system, no one's going to make drugs. <laughs> right? Um, now, they don't usually mean that if you press them. If you say, are you saying no one would ever make drugs? Because, you know, Italy and Switzerland didn't have a patent system that covered drugs for about 50 years in the late 1800s and the 1900s. And they, they were two of the world's leaders in pharmaceuticals. They'll say, oh, well, some drugs would be made, but not enough. So now we get to this stupid... Uh, market failure idea of the goddamn Keynesians, right, and the socialists and the Chicagoites. So they think that the market is okay, but it, it has market failure. It's not perfect enough. And the government can come in and identify suboptimal situations and tweak, tweak the property rights system to make us all richer. Same argument behind antitrust law and behind all these regulations. So basically what they argue is that um, usually in a free market – in the old age, in the in, in the in the material age, before the information age, um, free market competition is good because if you make a new type of uh, uh, 
if you come up with a new type of business that, that is successful, you make a lot of money at, you satisfy consumer desires, you will attract competition. People will notice what you're doing and they will start doing that too. But it takes a while, right? Because they have to make a factory similar to yours, they have to figure it out, they have to overcome your reputational advantage, your first mover effect. So you have a free market, you have a natural first first starter advantage, and you can make kind of quasi-monopoly profits for a while, but then they're going to erode, so you have to keep on your toes and keep innovating, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Like if someone comes up with an airplane, eventually someone's going to make another airplane. If someone starts selling uh, uh, pizza by delivery, like Domino's or whoever started it first, eventually all the other pizza companies are going to get on the business, and you're going to have a lot of competition delivering pizza, right? But it takes a while. Um the argument is that in the information age, like things like pharmaceuticals or novels or movies, with, with the internet, with instant copying, with digital transmission of information, it's too easy for people to compete. And we like a free market where people can compete, but it's hard to compete. If it's too easy to compete, then there won't be enough incentive for you to go into the business in the first place. So we need to slow down competition. We need to make it harder to compete. That's literally what they say. This guy uh, – uh, William Shukert, who's a free market economist writing for the Independent Institute, an allegedly libertarian think tank, wrote an article saying we need to slow down the spread of information so that there will be more new information, new, more new innovation to that it, that it comes about. So they want to tinker with the free market because they see market failure. They think that in a free market when there's information that's, that's easy to replicate and that's a big source of the value of a new product or service that – um, that there's a suboptimal production of innovation, right? There might be some novel being written. There might be some inventions being made on occasion, but not enough. There's an optimal amount that we need to tweak the law. So we need to give people this monopoly advantage for 17 years or 120 years to 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 raise us closer to the optimal amount of innovation and creativity being produced. Uh, so the governments are are, are saving, don't you see? The governments can come in. And give people artificial monopolies that let them stop competition to make us all better off in the long run. So we have more widgets now because of the, the benevolence of this omnipotent, omniscient state, which is fucking ridiculous, especially for any libertarian to believe. It's a crock. Uh, right. That system produces innovation and distorts it. It, it makes us all poor. Uh, well, you know, if you have a monopoly on an iPhone for 17 years, you don't need to innovate that much because no one can compete with you. Mm-hmm. In a free market, you have to keep innovating because people are going to catch up with you very soon. Right. Well, and so two things to that. Like, um, first off, I, I, I feel like this is yet another instance of the rearing of the ugly head here with, uh, of a concept I call lifeboating. Um, and uh, like, I'm not sure if I coined that term, but whatever. IP is bullshit anyway. Um, so... What I call it is lifeboating, and that's where, in like in the case of an anarchist or libertarian argument, uh, instead of like actually having an argument against it, like you said, all they'll do is they'll ask a long series of disingenuous questions. And what those disingenuous questions do is two things. First off, they imply baselessly usually that uh, that like the the government already solves the problem now. Um, like, which is an absurd, uh, proposition on its face to me, because first off, government doesn't solve any problems. 
And second off, when it tries to solve problems, it creates more. Um, and in this particular case, uh, it, it's, it seems like what, what they're trying to do, uh, allegedly, is protect innovation, but they've actually stabbed it in the back. Um, and they seek these perfect solutions um, fr from, from anarchists and libertarians. And then, like, you can ask equally... Um, or in many cases, more questions of a similar variety in nature, um, like of the government, quote, solution, um, because they don't have the lifeboat either. They're, they're demanding that you find the perfect lifeboat uh, for, for the situation, but they don't have the lifeboat to begin with. Um, and, and additionally, while they're doing this, they, they, they have this, this idea that that uh, that they're doing it to protect property rights, but they call on an institution which relies on the violation of property rights from the beginning. So how would uh, like when when I ask them this, I ask like, how does the nature of the state not taint the rest of the interaction? How does the nature of the state and like the very like strictures of being a government agent? Uh, operating like in in the capacity of the state uh not taint the fact that like hey we're defending your property rights but we're paid by theft we operate by monopoly on violence and we do all of this by like the use of coercion and aggression um and you know why do you need to call on them and not say your next door neighbor uh if you're if this is an inherent property right why would you call on the criminal institution if the thing you're doing isn't criminal? That's a better why. Well, and this, life, this lifeboat thing, it's brought up all the time. And what I've noticed about these arguments, so they'll say something like, okay, let's push your libertarian principles to the test. What if you got two guys stranded on an island or, or two guys uh, in, a life, in, a life, in a lifeboat on the ocean and there's only food for one of them and – Unless one of them dies, the other one's going to die too. So there's – how do your libertarian principles solve that? And my question is how do your principles solve it? I mean sometimes there are unsolvable tragedies in life, and you know sometimes there's no solution to a, a horrible problem. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with a world that uh, – where peace is possible, and we're, we, we, can have, we can have productivity and civilization in society. The question is what the rules should be. These are disingenuous arguments too because what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, if, if you can't prove to me that your system is 100% perfect in every way, mm -hmm. I, have, I have a justification to violate your rules and have a, a state come in and ruin everything. I mean the state can't fix these problems either, mm -hmm. uh, but the free market is way better on almost everything else, on everything else, um, right? And so – and to take this other thing, uh, so people say, well – it's so expensive for pharmaceuticals to be made. It's unfair for them to face competition as soon as they start selling the drug. Um, so the government needs to come in and get them patents to protect them from competition for a little while. But they never ask, well, why the hell is it so expensive in the first place? Um, mm -hmm. The FDA, another government institution that regulates the crap out of them, that's why it costs so much money to get a drug to market. And, and also, in a free market – a pharmaceutical company quite often would keep their new uh, their new uh, pharmaceutical compound. They would keep it secret, a trade secret. But the FDA process requires them to, 
to divulge all that mm-hmm. in public while they're seeking pr- approval for a year long, a year, a year's long process. So by the time they do bring this drug to market, which takes longer than it would take on the free market, they've already told all their potential competitors how to do it. So they're geared up and ready to go on day one. Which is why so many of the cool things I use, are like in terms of supplements and everything, like because I'm pretty much pretty big into fitness, uh, are, are marked not regu- not regulated or evaluated by the FDA. Right. Yeah, but some things have to be. Uh, so, so for example, um, uh, so these, especially these libertarians, instead of saying we have to give them a patent so they can overcome these huge costs. They want the, the, the same agency, the federal government, they, they, that made the cost high in the first place by minimum wage law, by, by taxes, by regulations, and by the FDA. They want them to grant another government exception to the market to fix the problem that they caused. Why don't they mm-hmm. think that we should get rid of the FDA and get rid of taxes, get rid of corporate, corporate taxes, for example, get rid of minimum wage law, get rid of all these regulations that – that make it expensive in the first place. And what about antitrust law? So the government has antitrust law where they say that you can't have a monopoly or you can't attempt to monopolize. And yet they're giving monopolies in the form of patents. And so there's another case I, I mentioned earlier that copyright is, is said to be in tension with the free speech guarantees of the First Amendment. The Supreme Court has said this. Intention means they're incompatible, right? They're incompatible because they're just edicts of a committee, right? They're legislation. There's no reason they have to be compatible. The common law grows organically, and you have to square every new case with what's gone before. So it grows organically, and there's a few consi- inconsistencies, right? Because it's, it's natural type law, and it complies with reality as objective. It's always a rule that was shaped in response to an actual dispute between actual parties over actual scarce resources and ownership issues, right? So the law develops gradually, more or less objectively, in common sense wise, right? In a, in a Bastia sense. Yeah, but, but a statute is just whatever is decreed by committee, so they, they tend to contradict each other. And you have the same thing like you have with copyright and free speech laws. You have the same thing with antitrust and patent law because antitrust law says you can't attempt to monopolize or charge a monopoly price or, or, or engage in predatory price cutting and all this stuff, and yet – they grant monopolies, which the whole purpose is to allow you to charge an above market price, which is a monopoly price. So they have to make an exception to the antitrust law for the use of your patents because otherwise the government's granting you a patent that you can't use. So they make an exception because they say their intention and they have to balance these things. But if you use your patents too much, then you're accused of antitrust violation because you're attempting to monopolize. So it's schizophrenic. The whole It's all schizophrenic. So these idiot libertarians who favor the federal goddamn government, <laughs> the source of inflation and war and propaganda and these lockdowns, um, the Federal Reserve and all this crap, and antitrust law and the FDA, they want them to grant monopolies that protect people from competition, right? restricting the, the free market property rights of their competitors and their customers. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, well, so Harry Brown, a noted libertarian, had a really good way of putting this. The government is good at one thing. It knows how to break your legs, then hand you a crutch and say, if it weren't for the government, you wouldn't be able to walk. And um, 
I, I think that uh, that's relatively well typified in this uh, in this example because we're dealing with like uh, a group of people who, by their unscrupulous means, have rigged entire societies to their benefit to the point where people feel that they can't even exist without this group of people. Um, and, you know, some people physically can't because they've become reliant on the state. Um, and instead of breaking that reliance, instead of walking away from this fundamentally criminal institution, which regularly behaves in a massively criminal way, uh, people are asking them to essentially increase and uh, the frequency and intensity of their criminality. And to me, that is such a counterintuitive way to approach the world, because we're, we're dealing with uh, fundamentally unethical people, and the answer should never be to increase their ability to do what they do, um, especially from a libertarian point of view, because the reason... Uh, the reason I asked you to be on is because we, uh, we we were in this thread with a, a few other people, and uh, and they were uh, accusing you of communism for your book, which they had no actual argument to, and um, this article that I also linked them to, and uh, and I think it's funny when people do this when they uh, w when when they basically anything I don't like is communism without any argument, without any structures, without any debate. They don't act, they're not actually interested in reality, uh, which is why even when somebody who's, you know, been in this for a long time, who's been a patent lawyer for, what did you say, 27 years? Um, like, even when you come in and say they, uh, they, they need to reanalyze their arguments, uh, a lot of people won't even give you that respect. So, um, like vested interest i can understand that is still dishonest but you know someone who thinks their bread butter depends upon ip or or it is dependent upon it uh it rarely is actually like these novelists and people they they get really upset if you say you should have a copyright but they don't realize they can make money anyway and the state actually hurts them it doesn't help them but um but so they, they have a vested interest but the other people they're just stuck with this they can't understand how you could have it without that, you know, and so they reject it. Sort of the reason some people reject anarchism. They stay with the Constitution and minimal government, which is impossible, right? It's a fiction anyway. Um, there's this thing as limited government. <laughs> or put it this way, all government is limited because no government can be absolutely omnipotent. So the idea of limited government is a meaningless idea. Well, yet. They're working on it. They work on it. I mean, the, even, North, even North Korea has some limits, you know, um, I guess. Yeah, well, and that's part of the thing. Like, you know, people talk about the Constitution. Let's just go back to the Constitution. And I'm like, which part? Which Constitution? Are you talking about the one that didn't allow, like, black people and women uh, much political power? Are you talking about the one without the Bill of Rights? You know, the, the, the first, second third, fourth, fifth amendments that all these, quote, constitutionalists constantly quote, um, or are you talking about the original constitution before any of that happened, and before people started to realize that, you know, maybe there's going to be another revolution if we don't uh, guarantee protection of certain rights? Um, 
it, it's it's always amusing to me that people who believe in quote the constitution and limited government never really define their terms. They're not interested in a thorough discussion about it. They're interested in the platitude, the emotion it rings up, that nice patriotic nationalistic fervor. That's what they're interested in. They're not interested in reason. They also don't step back and think about the very word constitution. So they think of the constitution as some kind of protector of rights. But the constitution is exactly the opposite. The constitution, I mean, the word constitution means to constitute, to make up, to create. The purpose of the constitution was to create a new centralized government on top of the original 13 states. Mm -hmm. So it's a creation of a government. It's basically... Uh, it's like the charter that starts a new corporation. It's 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 just a document that gives power to create a brand new state, which has grown into the most powerful state in world history, right? The United States federal government. Um, I I can't even understand why libertarians cling to this idea that it's a good thing. Uh, true to to succeed, it had to be. It had to use some terms that appealed to people's ideas of rights, so it had to promise it was going to protect rights and be limited in, in infringing rights. But the purpose of it is to create a new government, and basically everything that government does is criminal. Mm -hmm. It violates rights because it exists by two things, by, by taxation, which is theft. Um, or by outlawing competing agencies, right? Competing private defense agencies and police agencies, uh, which is a, a violation of the rights of the people that want to hire them and the rights of these people that want to. And which is appropriately like an IP claim on its own. Well, it is. In fact, I've written an argument that by Rand, Ayn Rand's reasoning, she claims to be against taxation and all, and all this stuff. But by her argument, um, her IP insane argument, you could say that the the founders of the country created this great design, the Constitution, which they had intellectual property in, and it's, it's now owned by the corporation known as the federal government. And they're letting us use that in this country, which has led to all this wealth that we have. So just, just like the Obama argument, you didn't build that. You were able to build that because you have these public roads and the education system that we provided you. So you can't complain if we tax you. Take away part of the wealth that you earn because you could have earned anything without us. Hashtag it takes a village. Hashtag you can always leave. Yes, and you can make the same argument from a Randian point of view. You can say, well, the federal government has an intellectual property right in this system of government that we invented, this, this novel, miraculous thing, which has allowed you to flourish under a quasi-capitalist system and make all, all this wealth. So if they want to charge you a royalty for using – to, to have a license to be able to use the fruits of their intellectual effort in this constitutional design, then that's their right. And in fact, they could say you can't use it without our permission, which is which is the if you don't like it, leave. Mm -hmm. So the, the IP argument leads to statism, the kind of stuff that Randians and libertarians attack when it comes from when, from. Well, also, it, it's like, it's essentially a social contract argument on its face. Like, let's be real here. I didn't sign shit that said I couldn't do that thing you did. But you still say I can't because the government agrees with you. And because somehow their co-signing of your bullshit means that I have to accept it. No, I didn't sign that. I don't have to do your social contract. But that's exactly what IP is.
that's why I characterize patented copyright as, as negative servitudes, but they're not contractually agreed to. They're not consented to by the people whose, whose property is burdened by it, mm-hmm. like it would be in a regular negative servitude, like a restrictive covenant, but instead the state just decrees it, right? And they, like, that's a social contract argument. You're right. Yeah, I mean, so ultimately it boils, and that's the fun part, because people immediately pull out the Lysander-Spooner argument. But then I can say that this is, in effect, just the social contract over again, and he opposed that. So I can say, hey, maybe Lysander Spooner was wrong about something, and IP doesn't exist even though he said it did. You know, I, I'm coming to think Lysander Spooner was wrong about almost everything, to be honest. Uh, um, I, there's, I really, I used to be a fan of Lysander Spooner, but he is so bad on IP. He may be the worst on IP next to Galambos. Uh, another insane libertarian. I mean, the insane libertarians on IP would be Spooner, Galampos, Ayn Rand, and J. Neil Shulman, my old friend who died a couple years ago. Um, uh, totally insane, because most of them want IP to last forever, number one, which would kill us, um, kill the human race. Uh, Spooner was, I mean, he was bad on so much. Uh, he was good, I guess, in arguing that by standard contract principles, the, the, the Constitution can't be justified. Okay, that's basically his main contribution that I see. I mean, his argument that that slavery was really unconstitutional is just nonsense. Uh, Of course it wasn't unconstitutional. Slavery was legal in the beginning of the country. Doesn't make it right. No, but but he argued that it was really unconstitutional, even though we didn't, like, it was built into the logic of it. We didn't realize it, but we, we have to, you know, it's just not a good argument. It wasn't unconstitutional. Unfortunately, but it wasn't. Right. I mean, I think the best abolitionist arguments came from Thomas Paine. I wrote an article on that for Agorist Nexus, if anyone's interested. But I think Thomas Paine uh, put forward the best arguments for it because he argued from a human and also uh, from a deistic perspective, which really appealed to the like the, the, the nature of the founding because he was there at the time. He's just somebody that most people who talk about the founders don't talk about because, yeah, we're not going to talk about the abolitionists who hated the way the system worked and went to France to help with their revolution, too. We're not going to talk about him. We're just going to talk about all these powdered wiggy guys who make us look good. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, we did abolish slavery. I mean, so the 13th Amendment right. specific, specifically says slavery is abolished except as punishment for a crime. So, and the states maintain plenary or complete general power to make whatever they want a crime. Right. Except for a few limitations. But, so, people in prison are basically slaves. And, and, the ones that are there for, for tax evasion and for drug crimes. I mean, you know, the state could outlaw anything they want tomorrow and put you in jail for it. That's the same thing as slavery. So the 13th Amendment did not abolish slavery. And we're still, ta- we're all tax slaves anyway. It's just a different form of slavery. Right. Well, and, and, and the Civil War is called what? Uh, emancipating slaves and enslaving free men. <laughs> that's what the Civil War did. Well, you know, and, and that's the thing. Like, I catch a lot of flack from a lot of people when I say this, but Lincoln not only did not abolish slavery, but he universalized it and he created the prison industrial complex. Um, and this was all after a bo- uh, like a uh, 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 fucking suppressing habeas corpus, suspending. That's the word I was looking for. 
habeas corpus that it, this is all after saying that you know if he could do like do the civil war without freeing a single black man he would this is not a good man for your abolitionist argument but oh he made a law so let's all revere this guy instead of like all the people who had been making solid arguments for a long time um and you know Let's ignore the fact that black people still had a short shrift for a really long time, and that's why Jim Crow laws worked, you know, because of Lincoln. But, oh, yeah, yeah, Lincoln, let's uh, bow down to that fucking, he's overrated. He. <laughs> I, like, I like when Trump, uh, Trump, the narcissistic, egomaniac Trump compared himself, he said basically he's the greatest president since Lincoln or something. Mm-hmm. And all the liberals went crazy saying like, oh, how dare you compare yourself to Lincoln? And I'm thinking, yeah, you're right. Uh, Trump is nowhere near as racist as Lincoln was. <laughs> right? Yeah. Their hero was one of the... He was a horrible racist. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I noticed that he didn't compare himself to Harding, which would have been a much more libertarian comparison, because Harding left businesses alone. He tried to use the the market as a way to allow the market to thrive rather than government, and he effectively, through laissez-faire, helped prevent uh, 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 the, the, the Great Depression from happening on his watch. But people don't pay, like, people insult him actively. People were happy when he died. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I see how it is. Um, and, you know, no, I, I'm not at all biased because I'm related. Wasn't Grover Cleveland allegedly pretty... To a certain extent, yeah. To a certain extent, yeah. But my favorite president is Harrison because he only he only lived at a month, <laughs> right? Yeah, Did the least damage of any president. Well, all right. So, um, assuming people can hear you, because I think your audio got fixed-ish, but like was still problematic. I'm going to put out a remastered version of this. I'm going to uh, fuck with the audio on my personal recording of it, and I'm going to be putting out like uh, this video again. So keep an eye out for that if you want to hear the remastered version. Um, that is assuming that my recording isn't just fine on its own. Because what I'm assuming is that there's something wrong with the stream itself. But my recording should yeah. sound like it did for, for me. So I'm uh, yeah. I'm anticipating not even having to do anything with it. But with that in mind, uh, where can people find you? And uh, what would you like people to look into on this subject to get further knowledge? Um. I have my regular site, StephanKinsella.com, and uh, I've got a I've got a page there for this book I'm working on, which is an edited selection of my articles on libertarian theory coming out in a few months, hopefully. Law in the libertarian world, and on my I put all my IP stuff on my C4, the letter four, the number four, C4SIF, which is Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom. org, C4SIF.org. On on the resources page there, I have like. A post like a selection of my best stuff or something like that. So, I kind of have like five or six articles and and talks that kind of are a place to start if you want to get into this stuff. And a few by other people like Jacob Hubert and uh, Sheldon Richmond and Roger Long and Boldrin and Levine. These guys. Um, so, if you want to look into it, you can start there. But basically, a lot of it's like what we talked about today. Some of it more systematic. I did do about a six or seven lecture course for the Mises Academy about eight, nine years ago on IP and uh, history, the theory, practicalities. And that's on my on my podcast feed on my website, too, if anyone wants to watch and listen to that. 
All right, very cool. And uh, uh, who would you recommend other than uh, other than you to uh, to get into? I know you recommended a couple uh, a couple books during this. Uh, the best ones to read, other than me, um, would be the ones I have on my resources page, and that would be say Boldrin and Levine are two utilitarian economists who have a book called Against Intellectual Monopoly, and they debunk all the all the utilitarian or empirical arguments for IP. Um, and on the theoretical side, there's a few people who come close to kind of my approach, um, but they're either not quite as rigorous as me or they're not as comprehensive because they don't know. Uh, but like, uh, but really solid people are Wendy McElroy, Sheldon Richmond, Jeff Tucker, and uh, Jacob Hubert. Uh, he's got a chapter in his book, uh, Libertarianism Today, on IP. It's a good summary of it, and that's on my page too at c4sif.org slash resources. Awesome. And uh, I'll uh, collect those links and put them in the description as well. Um, but with all that being said, where can people find you on uh, social media? Oh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook at, at NS Kinsella, NS Kinsella. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, uh, being the heavyweight we needed. Um, and with all that being said, um, feel free to sub. I just uh, surpassed 1,000 subs, and I'm told that's a good thing. So feel free to do that. I'm also available at all the links in that coin tree link, which I would recommend every anarchist get a coin tree, which, you know, I'm not paid by them. Uh, it's a Naomi Brockwell joint. It's basically, it's like Linktree, only with crypto addresses as well. So I recommend everybody get one of those. You can find me by all those links in the description. And uh, I'm going to see if the audio in the recording is up to snuff. Um, and better than the audio that was coming through the stream. Because for something with an excellent connection, I certainly got a lot of complaints about the audio. But uh, the audio came through fine for me, so I think my recording should be completely okay. I'll be sending that to Stefan, and if I understand correctly, um, he's going to be uploading it to his stuff as well. I'm not exactly sure. But uh, you can upload... I just need the audio file. Just give me the audio file for your version. Yeah, yeah, totally fine. Um, but because IP is theft, something to keep in mind is that all of my stuff is Creative Commons. Um, and I have made it very clear that uh, if you want to use, adapt, whatever my stuff, you can feel free. Uh, there are many people who simply mirror my content because they want to see my face in more places. And I appreciate that because I know YouTube ain't going to boost me in their algorithm. So you're preventing somebody's monopoly from hitting me harder by putting my shit places. Um, you can also support me by the links in the description. And uh, with that being said, yeah, smash the state. All right, man. Smash the state. Thanks. <laughs>